an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Thank you for the students for life for uh, sponsoring me to be here. Um, uh, so many blessings on them. I know you guys work very hard on campus. Uh, you're very dedicated. We had dinner before the talk. They go to the, to the abortion mill in Pittsburgh about every week, don't you guys? So um, quite a sacrifice, quite a great group there, and I thank you for having me. Um, <clears throat> I was told that there was a talk last night, and I hope there's not some confusion. Um, I was told there was a talk last night uh, where they were giving away free beer. Um, <laughs> if I see that we've got a packed house. Unfortunately, we are not offering free beer tonight. <laughs> Uh, so if that's you, you can, uh, you can, uh, you actually can't get out now because everyone will look at you. <laughs> no, but in case, I don't know if it was on the posters or not, this is probably why because it's such a good turnout, is you may have heard that we're going to be giving away books. Um, if, if, if any of you guys heard of the, the book 33 Days to Morning Glory? Some of you? Okay. Um, I, it's, a, it's a preparation for Marian consecration. And uh, I did my Marian consecration for the first time when I was a freshman here, and it absolutely changed my life. The problem was, when I did that, that I did it on December 8th, and so the ending days of the consecration, it was through St. Louis de Montfort, where there's a growing list of litanies and prayers, and around finals week, I had so many prayers to say, uh, and I was so stressed out that I decided to have mercy on students and do a, a version that's, um, that's not as much a 33-day prayer marathon. So you can do it even if you have uh, finals coming up. So I think there's going to be a push this semester to do the consecration. And uh, if you like the book, it's a, it's a preparation guide for doing the total consecration to Jesus through Mary that's sort of updated from Louis de Montfort. So it includes St. Louis de Montfort. There's a week with Louis de Montfort, a week with Maximin Kolbe, a week with Mother Teresa, and a week with John Paul II. So if you want that book, you got to stay for the whole talk. And then, uh, do we have, are the books here? I, I might be digging myself into a hole. That, anybody? Okay, there are the books. Thumbs up. Okay, so at the end of the talk, when people are going out, I think there's question and answer time afterwards. But I know you guys are students, and if you have to get out too, or if you have to get out any time, you can do that, no problem. Uh, but you get the books at the end of the talk, okay? So uh, that's probably why you're here. So, but you got to sit through an hour. All right, you got to pay your dues. Okay. Let's get started with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. Saint Joseph, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's not beer, it's water. Um, uh, one of my favorite quotes from Blessed John Paul II is that in the design, he says, in the designs of providence, there are no coincidences. In the designs of providence, there are no coincidences. And uh, the fact that the talk, this talk that we're going to be giving today, Mary's Gift of Mercy, uh, with that bold subtitle, The Second Greatest Story Ever Told, right? Um, it, the reason it's, I, I, I'm wondering, and I was asking the Lord, why are you having it on this anniversary of Roe versus Wade? 
I didn't plan to give the talk on this anniversary, and I was thinking, I was asking the Lord, why? Now, there's obviously a connection with, uh, you know, the culture of death and abortion and a need for mercy, and that's a the theme of this talk. But I remember uh, before the talk, I was I went to the uh, the Porchunkula uh, uh, beforehand and prayed, and I was asking the Lord, Lord, why why did you pick this date? What do you want me to say? And uh, when I got out of the chapel, I went to the little, uh, the tomb of the unborn child, where there's several unborn children buried. And as I was there praying, there, just a thought, a gentle thought came into my mind, and it was this, that this may be the lowest point on campus. Now sure, there's a lower campus, so I don't mean that, and yes, there's the circle where people drive the cars, but in terms of the campus proper, it occurred to me that that was maybe, perhaps, the lowest point on the entire campus, even lower than the Porchunkula itself. And it was just a passing thought, and I said, okay, I gotta prepare my talk. And so I was going back to a Holy Spirit monastery where my talk was, and as I was walking up there, and I got to the front door, and I looked up at the big cross that's above the monastery there. And I said to myself, wait a minute, now this is the highest point on campus. And maybe I was thinking that because I was huffing and puffing because I'm out of shape. <laughs> But I, I, what I realize is it's very interesting. This is the highest point on campus is this giant cross. The lowest point of campus is the tomb of the unborn child, relatively speaking. You might be able to find, if you bring a surveyor in, they might have something else that's a bit lower. But in a certain sense, it's the highest and the lowest points. And I, I was thinking what the, the, what the Lord might be saying in that is that we as Christians always need to keep our eyes up at the cross always have our eyes up on, and Jesus isn't on that cross. So it's actually a symbol in a sense of the Paschal mystery, of, that we need to keep our eyes on Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. That's part of our Christian life. At the same time, the tug of our hearts in our daily lives, where the cross of Christ goes through all the centuries, our hearts really need to be pulled down and into the deepest suffering of our era or of any historical period for the people of that time. They need to be attuned to that. If we're truly gonna be Christians who have the heart of Jesus Christ, our hearts should be going down to that lowest place where there's the greatest tragedy, the greatest suffering, the greatest bloodshed, the greatest inhumanity to man. And we find that here in, with the culture of death in the Holocaust of abortion. You know, I, I think Alex mentioned, is it 40 years? Is this the 40th anniversary? Roe versus Wade. Uh, I think in the 40 years, I, I may, don't quote me on this, but I, I did some research not too long ago, I think this is still right, that in 40 years worldwide there's been now more than a billion abortions. Now, a figure like that is something that we can't fathom. And if you're anything like me, what happens is when you think of a, of a tragedy, the tragedy of our time, the culture of death and its greatest symptom, abortion, it's something that we don't want to look at. It's hard to look at. I remember when I was a student, I would think about it all the time, and as the years went by after graduation, I found myself not really thinking about abortion so much, even though that's a daily horror of our lives. There's like, what, 1,500 a day? And I, what I started thinking was that the reason I was putting it out of my mind is because I, had, I was believing the lie that I couldn't really do anything about it, that I was powerless. You know, if you're powerless, if you, if you have power to stop a tragedy, then you, it's, you're focused on it. You go for it. You do it. You stop it, right? If you see somebody about to shoot somebody, right? you go and you stop it. But the thing is, if your hands are tied and you're in jail and, you, and it's just happening in front of you, what is our, the natural human response? To look away. 
at least that's the one last thing we can do is just turn our heads and not look, right? I think a lot of us are in that position where we're thinking we're powerless, especially the way you know, certain politics have been, that it may seem that it was, we're even more powerless than before in terms of pro-life. And so the response that, that may be welling up in our hearts is a temptation to just look away. Uh, and I think what the Lord is saying is we can't look away, but don't be afraid, or as John Paul would say, be not afraid, as Jesus, echoing the words of Jesus, because there is something we can do, and there is a sign of hope. In fact, what the Lord has given us in our day is what I believe is one of, it, one of the greatest signs of hope in the history of humanity after the story of sacred scripture. This is why the subtitle for this talk, the title is Mary's Gift of Mercy, and the subtitle, The Second Greatest Story Ever Told. Bold, but I mean what I say, and I hope by the end of the talk you'll agree with me. And my argument is that the greatest story of all is the story of sacred scripture, of Jesus Christ and the apostles and salvation history. But the second greatest story ever told is the one I want to tell now. And it's a story, it's one of the stories of salvation history. And I think it's the most powerful of all of the narratives, of all the stories that we have in church history. You're free to disagree, but I'm going to make my argument in this talk. And the reason why I think it's given in our time is because in our time, we need more than ever a sign of hope. We need a witness to hope, as the biography of John Paul II by George Weigel says, you know, a witness to hope. We have one of the greatest stories, one of the greatest witnesses to hope in a time of seemingly despair or when it seems like we're, we've lost. There's a message and a story that I want to tell now. It's not the best storyteller, but it's a great story, so maybe the story will make up for the storyteller and it'll be good and you won't be falling asleep. But hopefully this story will give us hope on this sorrowful, horrible, tragic anniversary. And hope, my hope is that it will enkindle our hearts to dedicate ourselves even more to the kingdom of Christ, to the building up of the culture of life and fighting the forces of evil in our time. Because Jesus is thirsting that we do that. Jesus is asking us to follow him in our day, in, in, in the midst of all these things. Now, so that's the preface. And now without any further ado, I want to get started with this second greatest story ever told. And I'm seeing some faces that have already heard this story in the crowd. Um, and I want to remind them, uh, you, you can go if you want. Lent hasn't started yet. <laughs> this, this may be a penance for you, uh, but uh, thank you for coming anyway. Maybe you just wanted the book. All right. <clears throat> the second greatest story ever told, it's, it's a story that surrounds the life of a blessed John Paul II. He's the centerpiece of it, but there's a lot of things going on. You've probably heard a lot of bits and pieces of the story I'm about to tell, but maybe never all of it put together as a central narrative of one amazing idea that I think God is doing in our time. Um, I want to present that, but before I talk about John Paul II, I want to give some of the peripheral uh, parts of the story. And understand blessed John Paul II and the amazing witness that he is in our time and his story is in our time. We need to know something first about the story of Poland. Now, a, a little disclaimer, I'm not Polish, <laughs> right? Um, but I love Polish history. And I spent a lot of time in my community. I lived in Poland for a year, and I studied the language and the culture. And it's one of the, the, the Polish history is one of the most amazing histories, in my opinion. And one of the reasons why it's so amazing is that there are several times in Polish history that God has seemed to use Poland to save the world. 
or at least to save Europe, but then to go on to save the world. Now that's bold, but I want to give you some examples and in some instances of that. Number one, I'll give you three examples of times that it seems that God has used Poland, this super Catholic country, to save the world, to save humanity in a sense. First instance, it's the year six, 1683. 1683, there was um, this huge Turkish army, this Muslim army that decided they wanted to take over Europe. And what they needed to do was get a, a foothold in Europe that would be their base camp to go on and conquer the rest of, of Europe. And they had their sights fixed on the city of Vienna. And in Europe at the time, all the princes and kings and things were bickering among themselves. They were divided. And these, this huge, massive army of Muslim Turks decided we can have easy picking with Vienna, that'll be our base camp, and we'll take over these divided Christians very easily. And so they attacked Vienna. And there were so many of them attacking Vienna that during the summer, people would look at the city of Vienna and they said, during the, the September, it looked like there was snow surrounding the city. And why did it look like there was snow? Because of all the white tents of this Ottoman Turkish Empire. And so and the idea is these Turks, these Muslim Turks were digging under the walls, these giant walls of Vienna, blowing them up, and they were intending to storm the city. And the people in Vienna were shooting arrows out with messages saying, we can only hold out for a week more. We can only hold out for, and it was getting down, you know, three, five days left, two days left, or whatever. Their time, it, they, were, it was, they were about to collapse, and nobody was coming to the assistance of Vienna, but, then, but except for one king, there was a king of Poland, King Jan Sobieski. He heard of the plight of Vienna, and even though it wasn't politically expedient for him, he went with his Polish hussars, the famous Polish cavalry, and they came to Vienna. They had some help with some of the German and Austrian princes they, who, who decided to kick in some forces, and King Jan Sobieski himself led a charge right at the commander's tent, sent people flying, killing them, sending them going, and they, they all fled back to the Ottoman Empire. And that was the high point of the Islamic rule and, 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 and threat to Europe. In fact, the day of the victory was September 12th. And they say that the 9-11, uh, the September 11th, that the reason the terrorists picked that day was to sort of undo the shame of losing that battle. So to go one day before and have a victory that would sh overshadow September 12th, which was the great defeat. And so, but if it weren't for King Jan Sobieski and his courage and the Polish hussars, we might likely all be speaking uh, Arabic now. And all of Europe may have become Muslim at that time. And who knows what, how the rest of the world would have gone. But that was one instance where God seemed to use Poland uh, to save Europe, to save Christian Europe. Another time, we'll fast forward a bit to the year 1920. 1920 was the year John Paul II was born, and he was very proud to be born that year because of what he calls, or what the Poles call, the miracle on the Vistula. And that, the background to that was 1920. That was shortly after the end of World War I. And that was a time when the armies and the peoples of Europe were flat on their backs, exhausted from World War I. And there was, the armies were depleted, the people, there were so much suffering, but there was one army in Europe that was not flat on its back. In fact, it was raring to go and conquer. And that was a Russian army that had been stirred up. It was of peasants, and it was a million-man army. And they were fired up by the likes of Lenin and the, and the communists. And they had a goal of going into Europe and conquering it. It's flat on its back, easy pickings. All they had to do was pass through the roadway of Poland. 
And so they were going through Poland and there was this ragtag Polish army led by Marshal Pelsudski said, no Russian army is going to march through our territory. And in a daring move, King, uh, I mean, uh, Marshal Pelsudski attacked this million man army, split it in half and sent them like those Ottoman Turks back to their home. And there was a Polish, uh, there's a, uh, an English historian, Norman Davies, he said, if it weren't for Marshal Pilsudski stopping that million man uh, Russian army, likely all of Europe would have become communist and atheist and, and Christ Christianity in Europe would have collapsed back in 1920. So once again, where it seems that God used Poland in a powerful way to save Europe, to save the world. Now, we'll fast forward to more of a famous one that some of us might be more aware of, 1989. What was the big iconic thing? What was the big thing we saw on TV? What was, what was the big moment for 1989? What happened? Right? The fall of the Berlin Wall, right? That was the beginning of the collapse of communism in Europe, right? This atheistic totalitarian regime, right? Wrong. It wasn't. That was one of the, that was one of the dominoes that happened. But it began actually in the Gdansk shipyards of Poland with the 10 million man solidarity labor union. That, that, that fought against the, the, the communist regime in Poland and led the domino effect of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the communism throughout Europe. In fact, I was living in Poland during one of the big anniversaries for this and they had all of the heads of state in Europe in Poland for this giant domino thing. They had like dominoes where each country was on one of the dominoes and they tipped them all over and the first domino was Poland. So once again, Amazing history, and there's other instances. There's so many amazing things in, in, in Polish history. But once again, a, 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 a significant part of modern history where God seems to use Poland to save Christian Europe. Now, among all these examples that I just gave, there, in my opinion, there is nothing more powerful than something that the, the Lord did with Poland even more recently. And what I'm, what I'm talking about is basically something that happened on the eve of some of the worst bloodshed, militarily speaking, in the history of humanity, the worst war ever, World War II. On the eve of that war, on the eve of some of the worst suffering in human history, Jesus appeared to this little nun in Poland named Sister Faustina, and he revealed to her the modern message of divine mercy. What I mean by modern message is, you know, the, the message of divine mercy is really the message of sacred scripture. In fact, as the catechism says, divine mercy is the heart of sacred scripture, the heart of the gospel. But the modern message of divine mercy is where Jesus came and appeared to someone as part of the prophetic charism of the church, where Jesus appeared to someone to give a message that's very deeply needed in our time, reiterating the message of the first greatest story ever told, this message of sacred scripture namely the message of his mercy. Of course, but Jesus is always merciful. It's all throughout scripture. Why does he appear to St. Faustina in such dramatic fashion, even having a picture painted, having her do a diary? Why does he appear to St. Faustina in our time, on the eve of World War II? It's because of what the very meaning of mercy is. Mercy is a particular form of love when it encounters poverty, weakness, brokenness, sin. Mercy is love when, it, when, love when it meets suffering. And according to Blessed John Paul II, our modern era is a time of unprecedented mercy, uh, unprecedented evil. And that's bad news, right? But the good news is that in Romans 5, verse 20, St. Paul says, where sin abounded, 
grace abounded all the more. So that in a time of unprecedented evil, God wants to give unprecedented grace. And that's what he's doing and saying and offering through the modern message of divine mercy. It's Jesus himself coming in our day. These are John Paul's word, words. Jesus, it's as if Jesus himself comes to our day to remind us that in this time of unprecedented evil, he's giving us unprecedented grace. He will not allow evil to have the final word, and he will, he will give even greater mercy. That's the message of divine mercy. That's the message that Jesus came to give through St. Faustina to the modern world on the eve of the worst suffering in humanity with, with World War II. But Jesus also knew that the culture of death would grow in our day and that we would be here this evening discussing what the, on the anniversary of the 40th anniversary of Roe versus Wade when there's been in the last 40 years something worldwide, something like a billion abortions, which makes in a certain sense the, the Holocaust of World War II and the tragedies and the bloodshed there just a, a drop in the bucket compared to what's gone on in the last 30, 40 years. But again, the message of mercy that Jesus wants to give to us is a message of hope and even greater grace. And, but it seems in some ways too good to, to be true, so I want to continue with this story which, and, and, that, and this amazing, dramatic way that Jesus gave, gave it to us. Um, now, we'll go back. Jesus appears to St. Faustina, right? She keeps a diary, and, then, and she has a, an image of divine mercy painted. And then she dies, right? <laughs> she dies in 1938, becomes a saint. Good, she doesn't have to suffer through World War II. But that message of divine mercy that she gave started to become very popular. It even began to spread during World War II, despite the Nazi occupation. But after the war, after World War II, when Europe was in agony, this message of divine mercy, this message of God's presence with suffering humanity spread like wildfire throughout Europe, throughout suffering Europe. People would look at that image of divine mercy. They would see that beautiful prayer, Jesus, I trust in you. And they would take comfort. They would take consolation. They would know that our merciful Savior is with them. It would remind them of the promise of sacred scripture. And it was spreading like wildfire. The problem was some of the bishops in some of the dioceses got a bit nervous. They saw that this message was spreading and they were saying, well, who is this nun? Maybe she's a crazy person, you know, claiming that Jesus spoke to her. We need to get this checked out, right? We gotta vet this thing. And so they took documentation that was spreading in their diocese and they sent it to Rome. And they asked Rome, would you look at this? Would you make a judgment about this Faustina and her message of mercy? And so the Vatican, they got these documents, but there were problems with some of the translations from some of the different materials. And because the translations were bad and there was errors in the documentation, Rome couldn't, didn't know that sometimes in the diary they were saying, is, is Faustina saying I'm love and mercy itself or is this Jesus? We can't tell, it's a bad translation. And so they decided to put a ban on the message. They put a ban on the message of divine mercy to the great pain of many, many people throughout Europe and even in America where it was being spread. And a lot of people were upset with this respectfully, but they went to their bishops and they said, please get the church to reconsider. This is such a dear devotion to us. This message spoke to me. Look, it led to this miracle and this miracle and this miracle. Well, there was so much clamoring that there was a bishop in Poland who was listening. He, he even said, you know, it was like people wouldn't even let them sleep. These people would say, please, bishop, do something. And so there was this bishop in Poland. And actually, all these people, they probably should have known that something was going on. That, that They should have expected this because in the diary of St. Faustina itself, 
Jesus told Faustina that there would come a time when this message would seem to be completely undone. It would seem to be that it would be completely fall away. And then she, and then she said, but then God would act with power and this message would be a new spring or light in the church. Now, put, now we'll put that on hold. There, uh, there's a, there reminds me of another passage in the Diary of Festina. I'm on a little bit of tangent, but don't worry, I'll bring it back, back to that bishop. But before we get there, I want to bring up another passage in the Diary of Festina that I have sort of looked at, and I was like, what the heck does this mean? Jesus said, um, he said in one, one time in the Diary of Festina, he said to Festina, I bear a special love for Poland. And if, you know, this is a very Catholic country, they, and they went through a lot of suffering. That's why he loved them so much, I think, because they suffered so much and united it to Christ. I bear a special love for Poland, and if she will be obedient to my will, from her, oh, if she will be obedient to my will, I will exalt her in might and holiness. From her will come forth the spark that will prepare the world for my final coming. Now, okay, we'll put that on hold. Don't worry, I'll get back to that. Um, but the thing is, obviously, with passages like that, it made some people nervous. And so there was this ban. And, but then the people were saying, please, we love this message, we love the image. And there was this bishop who opened up the investigation. He got better documentation, a better translation. He sent it to Rome. Rome took time with it. They investigated it. And after a thorough examination of all the documentation, they lifted the ban on the message of divine mercy. Six months later, the bishop who had been doing all of that behind the scenes work, six months later was elected Pope John Paul II. Did you know that? I love that detail, all right. <laughs> six months later, he's elected to Pope John Paul II. Well, and then when he became Pope, he forgot all about the message of divine mercy, right? Wrong. <laughs> no, he didn't. In fact, um, uh, one of his second encyclical, his second encyclical letter was Divus and Misericordia, rich in mercy. And he said that he had had Faustina, St. Faustina on his heart for a long time when he wrote that. But something else that's significant, a lot of times people haven't heard this, but he also, at the beginning of his pontificate, he went and visited the Shrine of Divine Mercy in Covalenza, Italy, a shrine in Italy. And while he was at that shrine, he made a startling statement. This is what he said at that shrine. He said, right from the beginning of my ministry in St. Peter's See in Rome, right from the beginning of becoming Pope, I considered this message of divine mercy my special task. Providence has assigned it to me in the present situation of man, the church, and the world. It could be said that precisely this modern situation assigned that message of divine mercy to me as my task before God. So he sees this message of divine mercy as his special task and as a task assigned to him by God. Now, then throughout his pontificate, he did speak over and over again about the message of divine mercy, about first it was venerable Faustina, then blessed Faustina, and then Saint Faustina. I want to fast forward, we don't have time to get through all of that, but I want to fast forward to the canonization when, when, when Sister Faustina became, or Blessed Faustina became Saint Faustina. Saint Faustina was canonized. She was made a saint as the first saint for the great jubilee year, the year 2000. That, and, and John Paul II, during the canonization ceremony, 
He said, by this act of canonizing Faustina, I intend to pass this message of divine mercy onto the, onto the new millennium, which needs it so badly. And it was interesting because it, 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 on Divine Mercy Sunday, and it was on Divine Mercy Sunday, and while he was giving the homily at this mass, the crowds were massive. They went all the way back to the Tiber and beyond. And it was interesting because Sister Faustina, St. Faustina's convent in Poland had, um, there was a bunch of pilgrims also gathered there at the convent. And it was amazing because if you read in the diary of Faustina, she actually had a vision of her own canonization where she's describing this event. She's saying there's all these people going as far as the eye can see in St. Peter's Sea in Rome and the Pope is there. And, and, she, and she's saying, and there I am and all these other things. And she says, and there was one detail, I'm, I'm butchering it because I'm not getting it exactly uh, exact, but I'm paraphrasing, but basically she said, but there was one thing that was a bit confusing to me. Somehow, all the people gathered in Rome, but there was also, the sisters were gathered at the convent with pilgrims there, and they could see one another. How this happened, I don't know. <laughs> well, on Divine Mercy Sunday, the year 2000, and that canonization, at St. Faustina's convent, they had the big jumbotrons. And there was a simulcast, and the sisters could see the people in Rome, and that was what Faustina was seeing. So it was amazing, and it was a great day of joy. I remember, and she even said, and I saw that on that day, Jesus was blessing everyone present. And I remember on that day when I was watching on TV, when I was a student here at Steubenville, I loved the message of divine mercy. I, I thought, this is so awesome. And when I watch all this going on in the year 2000, I was just like, you could feel the blessing that was coming in from the event, watching it live on television. And it was just, it was such a great event. But the, the, high, the highlight for the, the whole day, the thing that knocked my socks off as I was watching this, this canonization event and the homily was that John Paul II shocked everyone by saying, and now, henceforth, for the universal church, the second Sunday of Easter will be known as Divine Mercy Sunday. Why was that significant? It was significant because that was one of the main things that Jesus wanted, wanted proclaimed through this modern message of divine mercy. In fact, he would plead with Faustina, and she would say to Jesus, but Jesus, she, she, well, he would tell her, I want this feast proclaimed. And so Faustina would go to these theologians and priests, and she'd say, Jesus wants, Jesus appeared to me, and he wants this feast proclaimed. And they'd say, there already is such a feast. Shows what you know, sister, right? And then, so she would go back to Jesus, and she said, Jesus, they told me that there already is such a feast. And Jesus responded to her, and who knows about it? <laughs> In other words, that's why I want to proclaim nobody knows about it, and I want my mercy to be liturgically celebrated so everyone can share in it. And he gave great, amazing promises, which if I had time, I wish I could tell you about those promises on Mercy Sunday. But huge promises. So that was a huge day, Divine Mercy Sunday. Canonized Faustina, passes the message on to the new millennium, uh, and he, and he, and he uh, declares Divine Mercy Sunday an official feast of the church. As if that weren't enough, the, apparently after these big uh, uh, beatifications, they would not have banquets and things like that. The Vatican wouldn't do that. But for this one, they made an exception. They had a huge banquet. And John Paul attended. So did many priests in my community, the Marian Fathers, the Immaculate Conception. Father Seraphim Mihalenko, one of our older priests, he's like, got this, he's the Divine Mercy guru. He's got this white beard, looks like Santa Claus. But he, he was there at this event. And he said he was there with Dr. Uh, Valentin Fulcher, I think is his name, Fuster. 
who was the doctor who helped get the miracle approved, you know, all this stuff. And uh, Dr. Fuster had to leave the banquet early to catch a flight back to the United States. Before he went, John Paul II called him to him, and, and, and Father Seraphim relates that John Paul II said to Dr. Fuster as he was leaving, wait, before you go, I just want to tell you, today is, John Paul II, today is the happiest day of my life. Now, this is John Paul II who had quite a few victories in his day, right? This is after 89, that great victory over communism. In the year 2000, at this banquet, he said, today is the happiest day of my life. Why? What's the great, where does great joy come from? Great joy, the deepest joy, comes from fulfilling one's mission in life, one's vocation. And John Paul II, at the beginning of his pontificate, he said, this is a special task assigned to me by God because of the current modern situation. That it's his, that he saw, my, this is my, my conjecture here, is that he saw his mission was to give this message of divine mercy in our time and to hand it on to the new millennium that he knew would need it so much. And so he said, today is the happiest day of my life. You know, and that at that point he could hear the Lord say, well done, oh my good and faithful servant, right? No, but there was more. He kept going, right? He's the Energizer Bunny Pope. He just keeps <laughs> going. That wasn't enough. It wasn't just the year 2000, the great year of mercy, the great jubilee year. Because something else amazing happened. Cardinal Christoph Schonborn, the one who was, wrote a large part of the catechism, was the editor for it. He was there for this event I'm about to describe and said it was his conversion to divine mercy when he heard the words I'm about to read. What he means by that, his conversion to this mess, modern message of divine mercy. What happened? Well, in the year 2002, John Paul II went to the Shrine of Divine Mercy in Krakow-Wawegniki, I think I got it right, um, in Poland, to dedicate the Shrine of Divine Mercy there, which was the Shrine for Poland and Europe, for Divine Mercy. And while he was there, he gave this homily that blew me away when I heard it. I thought, I thought, the, I thought the Declaring Mercy Sunday was big. Listen to what he does in the homily. It knocked my socks off again. I mean, I was sockless. I'll have to join the Discalced Carmelites after this, Alex. <laughs> Um, but again, it was, I was blown away by this stuff. This is, listen to what he says. Where's my quote? Hold on. It's in here somewhere. Um, so he says, he, he says, it's in the context of him consecrating or entrusting the whole world to divine mercy. This is what he says. He says, today, therefore, in this shrine, I wish solemnly to entrust the world to divine mercy. I do so with the burning desire that the message of God's merciful love proclaimed here through St. Faustina may be made known to all the peoples of the earth and fill their hearts with hope. May this message radiate from this place to our beloved homeland and throughout the world. May the binding promise of the Lord Jesus be fulfilled. The binding promise of the Lord Jesus be fulfilled. From here, there must go forth the spark that will prepare the world for the Lord's final coming. This spark needs to be lighted by the grace of God. This fire of mercy needs to be passed on to the world. In the mercy of God, the world will find peace and mankind will find happiness. The end. <laughs> but I was like, whoa. The reason I was saying, whoa, is because remember that passage I read earlier about the spark 
and that will prepare for the Lord's final coming. That's what stuck out like, some, like Santa Claus on Easter. It was like, it just was like crazy right there. The spark that will prepare. The, the reason I say that is because when I came across that passage in the Diary of Faustina on my own, I was embarrassed by it. I don't like the apocalyptic stuff. I don't like end of the world stuff. I thought, I don't want to see this stuff. I want to just keep reading here. And I thought, and most of the priests and clergy that I know are also embarrassed by that stuff. And they would flip over that. But here's the Pope highlighting that passage, that controversial passage, and even strengthening it. May the binding promise of the Lord Jesus be fulfilled. That there's this spark which will prepare the world for the Lord's final coming. He identifies as the message of divine mercy. This modern message of divine mercy which just reiterates what's in sacred scripture. And the reason why it knocked my socks off so much is what John Paul II is saying is that he's not saying that we know the day or the hour, right? Who knows the day or the hour? If you know that, raise your left toe, right? <laughs> no, no, okay, good. <laughs> if not, none of us know the day or the hour, but what he's saying is the way we prepare for the Lord's final coming is not with fear and trembling, but with trust in God's divine mercy. That's the preparation. This extraordinary gift of mercy in this time of mercy. Now, we'll go on as if, you know, when I heard that, when Sh Cardinal Seanborn heard that, he said, this is enough for me. Hook, line, and sinker. I love this thing. And he started to do the World Apostolic Congresses on Mercy and all this stuff. But would you believe there was a lot of people out there still, a lot of clergy, a lot of people out there that did not like divine mercy. I don't... <laughs> They like the justice, right? They don't like all this divine mercy stuff. And they would say, oh, this is just John Paul's Polish kick, right? He just likes this Faustina because she's Polish and this will all pass. He should never have made Mercy Sunday universal feast in the church. Well, to silence those critics, John Paul didn't speak. But in my opinion, and Pope Benedict's opinion, divine providence itself spoke. God himself spoke. And I want to tell that amazing story because it gets even better now. Um, but with a, with a quick preface, all right? You guys are probably had a long day. I'll give you a quick other story, throw you a curveball. Uh, when I was, what is my story though? I'm forgetting here. Okay, it's a long day for me too. When I was, um, when I was in the seminary, I loved Blessed John Paul II. He wasn't blessed then, but I loved John Paul II. He was like my hero. He was one of the reasons I wanted to go into the seminary. And I read about everything I could get my hands on by John Paul II. I loved his stuff. And one thing is I'm kind of a melancholic personality type. You know, I am uh, I'm very depressive. I get down easy, right? I'm, I'm like uh, Eeyore, right? Remember? <laughs> That's usually me. Well, I love John Paul II. And I saw how old he was and frail. And I would look at his life and I would say, his life is so beautiful. His life is so amazing that if he, I said, Lord, if he just dies of like a heart attack in the bathtub, I'm going to be so depressed. And I was like, and the, you know what? There can be no fitting end to such a beautiful life. So I might as well be depressed about it now already. Right? Okay. We're talking major Eeyore action right here. Bizarre, yes, but that's Father Michael for you. And, uh, but the thing was, the ending of his life was so much beyond anything I would have imagined. It's beyond what a script writer of the most wonderful Hollywood movie could make. And I want to share that with you now. You may know bits and pieces. I want to tell you some of the full story, which when I heard, um, it knocked something, it knocked my hat off. It was, <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. Listen to this. John Paul II, 
April 2nd, 2005, what happens? John Paul II dies, right? And what is April 2nd, 2005? It's the day before Divine Mercy Sunday. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, maybe it has the potential to being the best story ever. If he would have just, if he just would have held on for one more day, it would have been the greatest story, second greatest story ever, right? Right? Wrong. Listen to what happened. John Paul II, April 2nd, the day before Divine Mercy Sunday. He's in, his, he's in the Vatican there, dying. And Cardinal, uh, Cardinal uh, Jeevish, his longtime personal secretary, uh, is there in the room with him. And John Paul's labor, uh, breathing, is labored, and he's going in and out of consciousness. And Cardinal Jeevish said that at one point he felt like this imperative in his heart, tell him, telling him to offer Mass right now. And so he obeyed. It was so strong that he obeyed. At the time, John Paul was out of consciousness. And so he set up for Mass, and he recognized that it was late into the evening. In fact, it was into the night on April 2nd. And so, as we do, if he, set, he set up for the Vigil Mass. And the Vigil for that was Divine Mercy Sunday. And so he set up the, lecture, he set up the sacramentary, the Missal, for Divine Mercy Sunday. He offered Mass... And John Paul II was conscious enough to be able to receive uh, the precious blood through a, drop, a droplet of the precious blood. Less than an hour later, in fact, more like less than a half an hour later, John Paul II went to his eternal reward. As Pope Benedict XVI himself puts it, he went to the Lord in the arms of mercy. And later on he even commented, I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact quote, but basically... If that's not divine providence, I don't know what is, right? But he put it in his very sophisticated, nice way, right? <laughs> but it's true. And, in, and that really, I mean, we're, I'm with the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. People thought we were nuts for years spreading this message of divine mercy. In fact, when the ban was made, we were really persecuted for it. In fact, we had to take all of our divine mercy materials and put them in big bags and bury them out in the field behind the Marian Helper Center in Stockbridge. In uh, the Marian... But, the amazing thing, what the Marians saw and many people saw is after that happened, it was like, you know, a lot of people say that when John Paul died, there was like this explosion of grace in the world. Part of that explosion of grace was that the hearts of so many clergy who had been critical or cynical were open to divine mercy so that now it's spread all over the place. As Father Seraphim calls it, the, great, the, the largest grassroots movement in the history of the Catholic Church. Because it didn't start with the clergy. It was with the lay people loving it and saying, we, we love this message, this message of God's merciful love. Why do people love it so much? What's so amazing about this message? It's just reiterating for us the heart of sacred scripture, that, the, that Jesus has the heart of the good shepherd, that he goes after the lost sheep, that as it says in the diary of Faustina, the greater the sinner, the greater his right to God's mercy. It's that message of saying, even if your sins were as many, even if your sins were as many as there are grains of sand on the seashore, if you threw yourself into my mercy and trusted in that mercy and turned away from sin, you would be completely cleansed. And there's that amazing promise on Divine Mercy Sunday where it's, people say, oh, it's a plenary indulgence. It's, it's not a plenary indulgence. You can get a plenary indulgence on that day, but it's a, it's a special gift of grace. I don't have time to get through it. I wish I, I, I did. It's a great grace. There's all these great graces of Mercy Sunday. Should I say it real quick? Yeah. All right. Okay, real quick. All right. Real quick, the grace of mercy Sunday. Plenary indulgence, you have to do the indulgence prayer, confessions like 21 days before or after, something like that. Don't quote me on that, something like that. 
Um, and you have to do, ah, what else? Prayers for the Holy Father. And then the big thing is total the detachment from all sin. That's the kicker. If you're detached from all sin, raise your right toe, right? <laughs> Who knows? Maybe we are. Maybe we're, but there, I heard a story about St. Philip Neri that he was once giving a mission where people could receive a plenary indulgence for going to the mission. And uh, the Holy Spirit told him, and it was a packed house, that only two people were receiving the plenary indulgence, Philip Neri and a six-year-old boy. <laughs> Presumably <laughs> because people were attached to sin. Now, does that mean we don't strive for plenary indulgences? No, we do strive for them, right? Because even if we don't get a plenary indulgence, we still get a partial indulgence, right? But the idea is the grace of Divine Mercy Sunday, that's not one of the stipulations. It's that you, do the, it's that you go to confession sometime during Lent, be in the state of grace, do some token act of mercy, and simply have that desire to receive, and go to, yeah, go to confession sometime at least during Lent, or Holy Week, or the day of Mercy Sunday, and have just the intention to receive that grace of Mercy Sunday. And it's, I call it the clean slate grace. That's why it's my favorite day of the year. <laughs> and I'm not ashamed to say that. But it's the clean slate grace. The, the, the guy that, John, that Carol Wojtyla, John Paul II, assigned to investigate what is the nature of this grace. And it was a top theologian in Poland at the time, Rozitsky. He said that the grace of Mercy Sunday is like a second baptism. It's not a baptism, of course, but he likened it to a second baptism. So thoroughly does it cleanse the soul. These are the amazing graces that Jesus is promising. How can he give a grace like that? Because he can go, he's God and he can promise what he wants. And if he appears to some woman and she's a canonized saint and he says, look, I want to give this grace and this is my promise, chances are it's true. And I believe it and, that's, and I happily receive that grace on Divine Mercy Sunday. Uh, and hopefully all of you will too because it's a great day. Anyway, where were we? Ah, the greatest, second greatest story ever told. Pretty awesome, right? I, right there, right? A beautiful ending. John Paul II, Poland, all this stuff going on, right? Wars and Jesus, I trust you. I'm appearing to the nun. Awesome, right? You guys aren't convinced yet. You're like, that's good. All right, but then, you know, Divine Mercy Sunday and the greatest day of my life, right? All that stuff. Still not convinced. But then him dying on Divine Mercy Sunday. All right, well, here's another one. It gets even better, as, I, as they say, right? It gets even, and it does get even better, because John Paul II, he died on, on the vigil of Divine Mercy Sunday. But being a good, uh, faithful priest, he prepared his homily for the next day, Divine Mercy Sunday. But because he died, he wasn't able to give it. And so an Archbishop of the Vatican delivered John Paul's last words to humanity. These were literally his last words. And listen to what his last words are. John Paul the Great, one of the great, great, great saints of our time. He says, as a gift, as a gift to humanity, which sometimes seems bewildered and overwhelmed by the power of evil, selfishness, and, and fear, the risen Lord offers his love that pardons, reconciles, and reopens hearts to love. It is a love that converts hearts and gives peace. How much the world needs to understand and accept divine mercy. Exclamation point, his. Lord, we believe in you and confidently repeat to you today, Jesus, I trust in you. Have mercy on us and on the whole world. These are the last words of blessed John Paul II, the great mercy pope. 
delivered after his death and the last homily he ever gave. And what does he say? How much the world needs to understand and accept divine mercy. Jesus, I trust in you. I really like that, those last words the best. Jesus, I trust in you. Have mercy on us and on the whole world. I like to think of his iconic words for his whole pontificate that he, were in his very first homily. What were those words? Be not afraid, right? To me, we've got the two sides of the same coin right here. Be not afraid. Jesus, I trust in you. Be not afraid. Why? Because we trust in Jesus who has revealed himself as infinite love and mercy. Never turning away a sinner who comes to him with a contrite heart. Never. In fact, his love for them is even greater, like the heart of the good shepherd finding a lost sheep. That's the good news. So that is the greatest, second greatest story ever told, in my opinion. The story of Faustina. In the time of unprecedented evil, God gives unprecedented grace and an unprecedented witness. Pretty awesome? Amen or oh my? Amen. Amen. But it gets even better. <laughs> All right. I got 10 minutes left, 13 minutes left. All right, so if you're tired, shake out your arms. We're almost there. But I got to tell you this part. It does get even better. And I didn't realize it got even better till the, sum, till the, summer, last, the summer before last. Uh, I can't remember which summer. It was like, not last summer, the summer before, that one. <laughs> and um, basically uh, what happened is that book that I'm going to be giving away to you guys, 33 Days to Morning Glory, that was when I wrote that book. I, I see Michael Baker out here. He was part of a novice class that had been praying for me. After I, when I was at Steubenville, I did my Marian consecration. Somebody gave me the book, Total Consecration Jesus Through Mary with St. Louis de Montfort, right? And I was like, they're like, Gately, you gotta, you gotta read this thing. I'm like, man, I don't have time. You guys probably say the same thing, right? I got all these other things to study. He gave me this book and I said, and he just gave it to me. So I went back to my dorm room, I looked at the back and it said, Total consecration to Jesus through Mary is the quickest, easiest, surest, and most perfect way to become a saint. And I was like, man, that is what I need. I'm reading this book. <laughs> and so I read it. And as I shared earlier, I ran the 33-day prayer marathon to do the consecration, which was the height of this book. And I consecrated myself on December 8th. Um, it was, I'll tell you the year so you can know how old I am. 1995. Was it 1995? 1995. And everything changed. Uh, it was like, it was something amazing happened. I really felt Mary's presence come in my life. It was great. And that's when I was like, I started feeling a vocation to priesthood. I had a beautiful girlfriend here. Um, we broke up. I went and, uh, and then actually, it was interesting. I went to the seminary eventually. She, she uh, called me once. Um, she was a French exchange student. She called me. Um, and she said, Michael, this is she graduated before me, I was still a student here. She said, she said Michael, I said, oh, her name was Blanche. She was, she was as beautiful as her name, too. <laughs> and her accent. The guys are laughing, the girls are kind of like, did he just say that? <laughs> so she called me up, she said, she said uh, Michael, I said, hey, Blanche. I hadn't talked to her in a while. She said, I just want to tell you, next week I'll be entering the convent. And I'll be giving my life in prayer for you to be a holy priest. She said, every day I'll be praying and sacrificing for you. So give your all, Mike. And I said, Blanche, I'm going to work hard. <laughs> and I did. Uh, um, in fact, I, I worked. Then I, when I got into the seminary, the founder of her community called me on the phone. And like, there's, he had, there's like 300 nuns in their community. They're out in Europe. And he said, um, 
He said, Brother Michael? I said, oh, hello, Father. It's like this famous priest in Europe. He said, I just want to tell you I have holy envy of you. I said, why? He said, because I've never seen a nun pray for someone as much as I see Sister Bernadette pray for you. Because her name went from being Blanche to Sister Bernadette. And, uh, and I said, and then I said, wow. And he said, bye-bye. <laughs> so I got the picture. So then I worked even harder. But one of the things that happened was, and Blanche and I, Sister Bernadette and I are still very good friends. She prays for me like crazy. And I write all these books, right? But the, she's really the, if, any, if there's any good in them, it's coming from her prayers. I know that. And all my other spiritual mothers. I, I know it very clearly. But the idea is, and this was a per very perfect case in point. When I graduated and uh, I made my consecration, I had you know, this great, I was swimming in these graces with the consecration. But then I went through this real time of dryness in my devotion to Our Lady. And I felt like, and part of it was, I didn't feel good enough. I always saw Mary as like up on this big pedestal. She was larger than life. And I just had this idea of like the words from Fatima. Penance, 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 right? And I was like, ah, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough rosaries. I'm not doing this. She mustn't. And when I felt, it seemed like her loving presence left. I thought it was because she didn't like me anymore. Because I was too much of a knucklehead. She's like, ah, <laughs> that one. And so I went through about 12 years. Michael, right? Didn't I tell you guys all this? Because I gave a talk to the novices when Brother Michael was a novice. And I, and I went through like 12 years of dryness and darkness with my devotion to Our Lady. I love Jesus, right? Because I knew he was divine mercy. But with Mary, I thought, ah, she must not like me because I'm not praying enough rosaries, right? And uh, I'm not pious enough. I'm not all this and that. Well, I asked the novices, Brother Michael Baker and a bunch of the other guys, I confided in them. I said, guys, please pray for me. You know, I'm talking, I was talking to them about this talk about Mary. I'm like, I'm talking about this, but I'm not feeling in my heart. Please pray for me. And I remember Sister Bernadette had been praying for me for years. Anytime we would talk on the phone, which is rare, don't scandalize anybody, it was rare, like Christmas or something like that. Or if she wrote me a letter, rarely, right? Um, it, would, it would say, she would always say, how's your devotion to Mary? And she prayed and prayed and prayed. That was like her key, the intention of her heart. And I remember, I, don't, I can't get into all the details because I'm losing the time here, but um, basically I went on a retreat and the retreat got canceled because I'm in a position now as the director of the Association of Marian Helpers. I lost 30 pounds in two years of muscle weight from all the stress and everything. I, and I didn't have a, a vacation in two years. You guys can start playing the violin, right? No day off in two years. And I'm just, I was like, okay, I have my retreat. My retreat started. The office where I've got 75 employees, they're calling and there's all these emergencies. I had to cancel my retreat. And I'm like, Lord, what are you doing to me? I can't even make a retreat. I can't. I can't make a retreat. I can't um, even uh, have vacation or whatever. Why are you doing this to me, right? Um, and I went to bed that night, discouraged. I woke up the next morning and I had the entire idea, the entire book, idea for the entire book of 33 Days to Morning Glory in my mind. And I was like, wait a minute, that could work. And I remember I sat down at my computer, I started writing. For the next three days, the phone calls and the emails slowed down and I wrote for three days straight. But then I had to get back to work because that was my retreat time, right? And I flew back to Stockbridge. But my, I actually had taken my first vacation. I scheduled the first vacation in two years. My sister and her kids and her husband were going to come up. She called me up. She said, Mike, the kids uh, all have the chicken pox. We're going to have to cancel. So I spent the next seven days writing around the clock. I got about three hours of sleep a night. And I would research and write, research and write. And after 10 days, I'd finish that entire book. Um, and, uh, and it was amazing. I know it was Sister Bernadette's prayers and others like her 
for two reasons. One, because I'm such a knucklehead. It's like, why can I write a book like that when I'm the one who's the punk the whole time being like, I don't know about Mary, right? And I just got blasted with all this grace in the process of writing and learning about Maximilian Kolbe, Mother Teresa, John Paul II, all the, 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 the obstacles were lifted. And I was like, I get it. And I was starting to see, like, with Maximilian Kolbe, he had such a tenderness in his devotion to Mary. He's like, my brothers, our dear little, little mother can do everything for us. Turn to her. And it lifted all these things. But what I realized is the grace, when I got that grace, I realized it was, it was the, the specific grace that I got was Sister Bernadette's birthday or something like that. So I knew she was praying. And then that book, partly because I'm giving so many of them away, in last year, just that one year that we did, uh, we, there was 125,000 copies distributed. Because a lot of people are like, oh, I like it. It's easier than De Montfort. <laughs> but <laughs> people are like, oh, that Father Gateway, what's he doing? No, but the idea was with the De Montfort consecration, you're actually supposed to read True Devotion to Mary. A lot of people don't. They just do the 33 days. But they're supposed to be together. So it's actually a really big preparation. What I do is I summarize the De Montfort and make it so that people say, well, Father Gateway, what are you doing? You're keeping people from prayer. No. Because what I'm saying is, you actually spend more time in prayer. Because the, the de Montfort version, which actually was put together largely with the, by the de Montfort fathers after his death, is there's a lot of vocal prayers. It's hard for a lot of people who have a hard time sitting still, like me, to get through. I like more of a contemplative prayer of Mary's prayer of pondering in the heart. And so the idea is it's two and a half pages a day of meditation that students can do. And you read those two and a half pages, and the idea is that you take the core nugget of it, which I identify at the, at the end, and you ponder it in your heart all day long. So it's not just a one time of prayer. Throughout the day, you're, when you're walking to class or whatever, you're in a 33-day retreat, pondering what you're learning about the Mirian Consecration with a week with Louis de Montfort, a week with Maximin Kolbe, a week with Mother Teresa, a week with John Paul. And so the idea is, I'm, anybody who wants them, so long as we have them here, and if you're here and you can't get one, we'll see if we can work something out. But you can have a copy, and I encourage you this semester to do the consecration. If you haven't done the consecration, do it. It's the quickest, easiest, surest way to become a saint. Hot dog, right? Um, if you've already done it, I encourage you to renew it uh, so that you can get the insights of, Col insights of Colby and Mother Teresa and John Paul. Okay? Now, can you guys hold out for, I got f five minutes left. Can you hold out for seven more minutes? Yeah? Okay. Because I still got to finish the second greatest story I ever told. All right, but that's the thing about the consecration. Now, all right, let me get ready for this. I'm going to have to go fast. What I realized as I was writing this book is this, that for me, the runner-up to the second greatest story I ever told would have clearly been Fatima. I thought Fatima is like this amazing story where while World War I is raging, Mary appears to these three shepherd children. And what's amazing to me is she tells, she reveals to them this amazing stuff. One thing that she reveals to them is she's saying, if people don't convert and pray, a worse war is going to come. During the pontificate of, and she mentions the Pope, and whose pontificate the war is going to happen. And then she goes on and she says, and if Russia isn't, isn't consecrated to my immaculate heart, she will go and spread her errors throughout the world. People at the time were saying, Russia, holy Russia, right? Because Russia was holy at the time and all this. And poor Russia what, has no influence. How is Russia going to spread her errors throughout the world? They're going, what the heck? This is 1917? 17. And uh, the Bolshevik Revolution had, was just in its infancy. So people are like, what's going on here? And, and, and Mary also said, showed the children a vision of a bishop dressed in white, right? And this bishop, the children were terrified because this bishop dressed in white would be shot 
and killed. And they were terrified because they, they recognized that bishop as being the pope. And it was so terrifying, in fact, that the church, that the, uh, the hierarchy of the church, different church leaders, they, they decided to keep that secret so as not to disturb the faithful. Well, that was Fatima, and it's just some, this amazing story. Of, and sure enough, World War II happened. There was tremendous suffering. Russia did begin to spread her errors throughout the world, but things came true. I thought, this is totally amazing. But now, this is where I realized that Fata, the Fatima story ties in intimately with the second greatest story ever told, as I've called it. Because Mary appeared to those shepherd children May 13, 1917, at 5 p.m. 64 years later, at 5 p.m., John Paul II is getting in his Pope mobile to do his Wednesday, to do a Wednesday to do his audience in St. Peter's Square. And as he's going along, a trained assassin, Aliaka, pulls out a gun and at close range fires several shots at John Paul II. John Paul II is shot in the abdomen and he bleeds to death on the way to the hospital. One of the great tragedies of this 20th century. Right? Wrong, Father Mike, you little stinker, right? <laughs> <laughs> Wrong. He doesn't. He doesn't bleed to death in the way of the hospital. Miraculously, they get, make their way through, through uh, the traffic in record time, in miraculous time. But the big miracle, if you ask John Paul II what happened, he says, yes, it is a miracle. One hand fired the gun and another, because that, when the, well, the thing is, is it, it, sh it seems like he should have been killed, right? Because this, the image at Fatima was this bishop dressed in white who would be shot and killed. But he wasn't killed, so what happened? John Paul gives the answer now. He says, yes, one, it, one hand fired the gun, another hand guided the bullet. That's what John Paul said. And he identified that other hand as Our Lady of Fatima, who spared his life. He spared his life in 1981. And the idea is, this is why this talk is called Mary's Gift of Mercy is that it was an act of mercy from our Mother of Mercy, sparing the life of blessed John Paul II, who should have been killed, but based, in a certain sense, but people were probably praying the rosary, or maybe it was just her, the mercy of her motherly heart, seeing you know, that they have no wine, figuratively speaking, in our time, the wine of mercy. And seeing that we didn't have it, she spared his life so he could go on to bring the church into the triumph of Mary's Immaculate Heart, which is the triumph of divine mercy. Why the triumph of divine mercy? I'll explain now. John Paul was shot in 81, right? John Paul, he identifies that Mary, Our Lady of Fatima is the one who spared his life with her hand gui guiding the bullet. Well, a year later in 82, on the anniversary of, the, of, of Our Lady of, oh, and it all happened on Our Lady of Fatima, by the way. I forgot about that. That's why I identified May 13th, right? The anniversary. So he goes to Fatima a year later on a pilgrimage of thanksgiving to the mother of God and the mercy of God. John Paul is uniting these two themes here, the mother of God and the mercy of God. And what he did is, is um, in his homily, on that occasion, he gave one of the most beautiful homilies I'd ever read of his. And he, he basically talks about the meaning of Marian consecration. And what's stunning for me in this, in this homily is he says the whole meaning of Marian consecration, this shocked me. I was like, what? He said, the whole purpose of the consecration, the meaning of the consecration, is for Mary to bring us to the pierced side of Christ, which she identifies as the fountain of mercy. That Mary's whole role is to bring us into divine mercy. That's the meaning of the consecration. That's everything who Mary is. And when I read that, as I was writing that book in those 10 intense days, 
That was one of the biggest lifts of the block that I had with Mary. Because what I realized is, holy Toledo, Mary hadn't abandoned me. She hadn't, uh, she hadn't abandoned me those years because I was such a knucklehead, as I thought, right? That really, she was just doing her job. I was full of all those warm fuzzies right after the consecration. But then she got out of the way, and she was more like behind me, pushing me into the rays of God's mercy, into the, into the pure side of Christ, so that I would come to know and accept divine mercy. I believe that was a grace obtained through the prayers of my, our Blessed Mother. And I realized she wasn't rejecting me. She was trying to get me to discover the mercy of her son. And she got out of the way and was pushing me into it. So, that, so the idea is 82, John Paul. But there's more to this connection. This is where I started to see, holy Toledo, the second greatest story ever told, the Fatima and mercy and all this, the mercy Pope, Faustina, all these things go together. Even Colby, but I don't have time to get into that. It all fits together. Because then what happened later? Well, fast forward, 1984. John Paul II invites all the bishops of the world to join him in St. Peter's Square in Rome to solemnly consecrate and trust the whole world to Mary's Immaculate Heart, where Russia is included. We won't get into all that, but where it consecrate the whole world to her Immaculate Heart. And in 84, John Paul, with these bishops, consecrates the whole world to Mary's Immaculate Heart. But he ends his prayer, the entrustment prayer, the consecration prayer, by uniting the consecration of Mary and again, divine mercy. Listen to his words. He says, let there be revealed once more in the history of the world, the infinite saving power of the redemption, the power of merciful love. May it put a stop to evil. May it transform consciences. May your immaculate heart, Mary, reveal for all the light of hope. What's the light of hope? It's the rays of God's mercy, the rays of the good news. Jesus, I trust in you. That's the power of merciful love that overcomes evil. That was 84. He entrusts the world to Mary's immaculate heart, invoking the power of divine mercy. That's 84, 85, 86, 87, 88, 89, five years later. Mary had some work to do, took five years. What happens in 89? the beginning of the collapse of the Soviet totalitarian regime which persecuted the church in a horrible way. And it begins to collapse, I believe, through Mary's intercession because of that entrustment and consecration. And the reason I believe that so strongly is in 91, when the, when the Soviet Union was officially dissolved, Mikhail Gorbachev signed the dissolution of the Soviet Union. What day was that? December 8th, 1991 the solemnity of the, of the Immaculate Conception. So again, this is called Mary's gift of mercy. Why? Because Mary's whole being is to bring us to the mercy of God. And the triumph, I believe the triumph of her Immaculate Heart is the triumph of divine mercy. Because that's the spark that will prepare the world for the Lord's final coming. And the way we prepare for the Lord's final coming is if we get everyone to trust in the mercy of God, to turn away from sin, and to experience that saving mercy, which brings not only good out of evil, but an even greater good out of evil. And so I want to leave you then with one image, and that is the image that was at the crest of John Paul II's papal motto. And this is the whole meaning of the consecration, which I hope all of you will do. Because, and the reason why I hope all of you will do it is because, well, I'll get to that. The crest, and I'll make it quick, I know, I've been saying it. That crest, what do you have? We have a cross, and what's below one of the arms of the cross? An M, right? 
That's because for John Paul II, the summary, the essence of the consecration is John 19, verses 26 through 27, when Jesus, dying on the cross, looks at Mary and John, the beloved disciple, and looking at John, he says, woman. Or he says, no, he sees Mary. Okay. He says, Mary, and he says, woman, behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. And then and John Paul II says, that is what it's all about. <clears throat> the consecration is simply to give Mary permission to be that mother that was, to, it's, it's a response to the gift that Jesus himself gives us from the cross of Mary as our spiritual mother. But Mary who respects human freedom better than anybody because she knows what human free will can do when she said fiat and you all know what happens. She's waiting for all of us to accept her fully, to give her full permission to use her full motherly mediation in our lives. And that's what the consecration is. We can always go deeper with it. But if we do that, then you, can, you will be able to say, you will be able to look back on this time as a student here at Steubenville, as I did when I made my consecration, and say it was a turning point in my life. That's the words of John Paul II. When he was 18 years old, he read True Devotion to Mary. He did the consecration and he said it was the decisive turning point in his life. That's the power of the consecration. It, makes, it, can, it, ha, it gives Mary permission to make our lives into something beautiful for God. That's what she wants to do in the quickest, easiest, surest way. Hot dog, right? I mean, who, who wants to pass this up? So I encourage you to do the consecration, and this is a message of hope, great hope, the consecration, divine mercy on this day of infamy, this day of the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, which seems again, as I started with, it seems like just an anniversary of despair, and in many ways, it's, it's, a, it's an anniversary of great sorrow. But this message that I think divine providence gave for this date is that mercy overcomes evil. And he's looking for just a few of us to give our lives completely to the mercy of God with trust through the powerful intercession of Mary and by the consecration so that he can take each one of us and make our lives beautiful for God and use them to conquer the reign of Satan in the world. That's what he wants to do, and he can, it, he can take the littlest souls to do it. I hope you'll have a fruitful consecration. I think the preparation day for uh, the Annunciation, which would be the big one, I think, uh, because the Annunciation actually has changed this year, it's on April 8th this year, so you would start on March 6th. All right, so if you want to start March 6th, but again, it's student-friendly. You can still do it and have midterms and finals, okay? Let's close with a prayer, and thank you for your attention. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Mary, Mother of Mercy, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.